the lottery down here in Florida is sort of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, uh, I, I've not been in Florida for a long time. I left in 2009. I was come, I came from the West Coast and went to Georgia, and now I'm back. And, you know, wow, there's a lot of people that sell a whole lot of lottery tickets. I get behind people in convenience stores, and it's like some folks pulling out whole checks here almost to buy a lottery. Of course, I looked it up this morning out of curiosity, and the Mega Millions lottery is $195 million. $195 million. I, I, think, I think we should play. I, I think we really should. I think what we ought to do is we ought to, we ought to pool our money. You know what? We, I got a secret weapon, so we really don't need but $1 to buy one ticket. That's all we got to do, $1. So in a little bit, we're going to probably pass around the collection plate. Everybody put in a penny or two, and, you know, we'll get there. Uh, but I have a secret weapon. It's in John, the 14th chapter, verse 13 and verse 14. It says, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I don't have one verse. I've got two verses because that's two verses. John 14, verse 13 and verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Anything in my name, I will do it. Not once, but twice. Jesus said if we ask in his name, he'll do it. So here's what I think we ought to do. I ought to pass around the collection plate. Everybody put in a couple of pennies. We'll win the $195 million lottery because we're going to have a prayer that in Jesus' name we win the lottery. And then we can do lots of stuff with $195 million, right? Well, you're probably sitting there going, you know what, David, this, that's not going to work. Man, there are other verses in the Bible about prayer. There's a lot of other things in the Bible about prayer. Yeah, but this verse says, if I ask anything in Jesus' name, I'm going to get it. That's what Jesus said. That's what it says, that one verse, two verses. If I ask anything in Jesus' name, I'm going to get it. And if you know the Bible at all, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, but wait a minute. James says in James the fourth chapter in verse 3, Ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it on your lust. The ESV puts it this way. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you might spend it on your pleasures. God's Word translation says when you pray for things, you don't get them because you want them for the wrong reason for your own pleasure. And then when we read other places, we see where James 4 and verse 15 says that our prayers have to be according to God's will. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount that thy will be done in that famous Lord's Prayer. So you say, man, that you know, David, it's a good intention. $195 million would work great, but... Uh, you know, it's not all about just those two verses to say, ask anything in my name and you'll get it. Okay, well, we get that concept, right? Well, we need to understand that principle is something that carries itself along throughout all the Bible. If we want to know the, God's will on any given subject, we have to look at all the verses in the Bible that pertain to that particular issue. Whatever it might be, whether it be prayer, whether it be the plan of salvation, whether it be the worship of the church, no matter what it might be, if we look at the Bible, we can't look at just one or two verses. We've got to look at all of God's will to understand the totality of his will. So it's not just about one verse. It's about more than that. It's about all the verses that pertain to any given subject. And the subject this morning is salvation. Namely, we're going to talk about baptism. Now, no doubt about it, faith is mentioned more than anything else within the pages of the Bible. 
believing in God. There's a three-to-one ratio. For every time something like repentance is mentioned or confession is mentioned or baptism is mentioned, faith is mentioned three times as much. And the reason being is because I'm convinced that faith is that that causes those other things to take place. It is the motivating force. It is that which drives us to be obedient to the Lord. But repentance is also mentioned. Repentance is also mentioned. Confession is mentioned. And baptism, it's mentioned a lot. And our question this morning is, what does the role of baptism play in salvation, or does it play any role at all? Well, we're in this series called Back to the Basics, and I know you may be already growing tired of it. I hope you're not. But if you are, you know, just buck up. We need the basics, man. We've got to get back. We've got to understand why we are, who we are, what we are, and why we believe the things that we believe. And the only way we're going to do that is every now and then we've got to go back and we've got to look at the basics. And so we've been in this series of Back to the Basics, and we've talked first and foremost about the Bible is the only authority in religion. It's not about what you think. It's not about what I think. It's not about what I say. Listen, if you can't show me in Scripture where something is right or wrong, then I shouldn't believe you, and the vice versa. If I can't show you in Scripture where something's right or wrong, don't believe me. I have to at least back up everything I say with Scripture. But if I can, if I can show you in Scripture where something is so, then please be honest enough with your heart and with God and with the Scriptures to disregard any commandments and doctrines of men that you may have come to embrace over the past years of your life. We talk first about the Bible is the only authority when it comes to things religious. No creeds, no dogmas, no doctrines of men. They don't even come into play. The Bible has to be the only authority. We talked about the plan of salvation. How it consists of more than just believing. It talks about faith and belief. Yes, three to one. But it also talks about repentance. It talks about confession. It talks about baptism. So today we're going to talk about baptism in detail as a part of our Back to the Basics series. And we're going to ask basically five questions. We're going to ask who, what, when, how, and why. The first question is who. Well, no doubt the Bible specifies who should be baptized and as believers. It's believers. In Mark, the 16th chapter, in verse 16, Mark says that Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In Acts, the 8th chapter, in verse 35 through 38, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Then Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So the Bible makes it clear that it is believers that are to be baptized. Philip said to him, Thou mayest, if thou Believest. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, the word and is a coordinated conjunction. It joins two words of equal power or rank. The believe and be baptized. You cannot separate them. Be baptized and believe you'll be saved. Now, that's what Jesus says in Mark, the 16th chapter. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, when we understand that believers are the ones that are to be baptized, then that eliminates some things. Infants. Infants have no need to be baptized. One, an infant cannot believe. 
Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. An infant cannot believe in the sense that you and I, I actually had someone tell me one time that infants could believe, and I was like, well, I'm, how? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. An infant cannot believe. An infant cannot repent. And if they could repent, what would they repent of? What does an infant repent of? Because they had an accident in their diaper? I mean, what do they repent of? What's the repentance for? It's for those who believe, who are responsible for their sin. Infants cannot confess Christ before men. Thou mayest, if thou believest, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Ethiopian unit would say. And also, I believe, eliminates very young children. There has to be within the pages of Scripture, though it's not mentioned word for word, there has to be the concept that is implied, it is inferred, that there is an age of accountability. There has to be a time that when you transition from an innocent child, and keep in mind, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Suffer the little children to come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Except you become like little children, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. But there has to be a time when that child grows to a certain age that he or she becomes accountable for their sin. And at that point, which we call an age of accountability, those words are not found in Scripture. At that point, they become responsible to God for their sin and dealing with their sins by virtue of Christ and the cross. Now, I don't know the exact age. I believe there are some children that never get there. There are some children that have mental handicaps, and they never reach an age of accountability. I see some sometimes, and I think, boy, you just don't realize you got it made. You really do, because you're going home. When this life's over, they're never going to be accountable. And when life's done, they go home to be with the Father. But there has to be an age where we get to that God says, now you're responsible for your sin. I don't know when that age may be. I don't know exactly when that age may be. There's a hint that Jesus at 12 years old was responsible to the sense that he would stay and stay in the temple. And when his parents found him, they said, why have you done this to us? He said, we, and they said, we've been searching for you and we've not been able to find you. And Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house about my father's business? And you say, well, you know, that's Jesus, David. That's not, you know, my son or my daughter because they're running around and don't know which ends up yet. Well, that may be the case. And I'm not saying there's a particular age. I'm just saying Jesus, when he was 12, had come to a point where he realized that God and God's business was to involve him. Now, I'm not going to, let me just put it this, I'm not going to baptize a four-year-old. I'm just not going to do it. Or five or six, or seven, or eight. I have, I believe in the past, baptized a nine-year-old, very mature nine-year-old that knew what she was doing. But a nine-year-old even stretches at 10, somewhere around 11 or 12, when they realize that, look, I am guilty of sin, I am responsible for my sin, I have an obligation to God, and I think they also need to understand that I am willing to make Christ Lord of my life. I'm willing to yield my life to Christ. So that brings us to accountable believers. When we ask the question, who should be baptized? Accountable believers. Those who have heard about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And they believe that. And don't tell me for a second that Philip did not talk to the Ethiopian eunuch about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because he was reading from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, which says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Philip began at that same passage and spoke to him and taught him Jesus. And that would include the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Accountable believers who understand that believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ and are willing to make Christ Lord 
Those are the ones who qualify to be baptized. Now, we come to the next point. What? What is baptism? What is it? Well, I believe it's a line in the sand. I believe it's a line where God says, this is a line of demarcation. This is where you are forgiven. This is where you are not forgiven. Now, keep in mind that God has used, a lot of people stumble at this. They say, well, water baptism, there's nothing magic in the water. I agree. There's nothing magic in the water. It's about obedience. It's about submitting to the will of God. But keep in mind that God used water in the past. He used water to bring Noah from a world that was wicked and filled with sin to a world that had been purged of sin. He used water to bring Israel from a land of bondage to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a promised land. And if you read 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, it says they were all baptized unto Moses when they passed through the Red Sea in the midst of the cloud of the water. He used water to bring Naaman from one who had been a leper to one who had received his flesh back to the flesh of a baby. And then he used water to bring a blind man who had been born blind to sight, to a world of light. Now, baptism, I believe, is a line of demarcation, of forgiveness that takes place in, in the mind of God. You need to understand something. Forgiveness takes place in the mind of God. At what point? That's the question. That's the question that we're looking at this morning. At what point in the mind of God does God say, that's it. They are now my children. They are now in covenant with me. They are now those who have their sins washed away. And they are cleansed of their past sin and I will remember their sins no more. I'm convinced that baptism is that line of demarcation and I'll talk more about it in just a moment. Baptism is also a point of covenant. Colossians the second chapter in verse 11 and verse 12 says, In whom, speaking of Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now that passage in Colossians talks about this circumcision that takes place among believers. But it's a circumcision that takes place in the heart. When does it take place? When you're buried with him in baptism and you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. That's when that circumcision takes place in our heart. A circumcision made without hands. Now keep in mind, that under the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, circumcision was the means by which one entered into the Old Covenant. It was the means on the eighth day of a male's life, he was circumcised and that brought him into the covenant that God had established with Abraham. Now, in the Old Covenant, you were a part of that covenant by virtue of lineage. You were a part of the Jewish community. You were born, you were circumcised on the eighth day, and you became a part of that covenant. You were brought up all your life, and people would say to mom, dad, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, friends, know the Lord, know the Lord, learn the Lord, come to know the Lord, put the Lord in your life, all your life as you grew up. Now what's interesting is when God says he's going to make a change in the covenants, to move from old covenant to new covenant, and new covenant, you better be glad we're in new covenant, because we're Gentiles. We're Gentiles. And we have been brought into the new covenant. We were excluded from the old covenant. But God prophesied about this new covenant that he would start. Listen to what he says. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me 
From the least unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know what that passage is saying? That passage is saying that, look, God's going to set up a covenant. And no one's going to say, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because everyone who comes into this covenant is going to know the Lord. He is going to be one who's heard of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He's going to be one that's heard of Christ. And they're going to know the Lord. It's not a covenant by birth. Not of physical birth but by spiritual birth, and it takes place with accountable believers, those who can assent to the fact that he was killed, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. That's the covenant that I will make, in the, make with them in those days. And no one's going to say, know the Lord, because they shall all know me. Why? Because all of them have to come to a point of faith before they reach the watery grave of baptism. Baptism is a circumcision that brings us into that covenant with God, into that new covenant. It is also a sealing. The Bible talks about our being sealed. Second Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 21 and 22 says, He who established us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians, the first chapter in verse 13 says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we are sealed as Christians. When does that sealing take place? When does that happen? 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost said, Wow, we've crucified our long-awaited Messiah. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When they were baptized for the remission of their sins, at that moment they also received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and their sealing by the Holy Spirit took place at their baptism. Baptism is a point where God deems your sealing you're becoming his now it's been said by a number of denominations that baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward faith i know you probably heard that if you talked to any denominational people about baptism that's all that's what they're going to say baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith well i really have no problem with that i know the passage that particular verbiage is not found in scripture but i have no problem with that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith Repentance is an outward sign of an inward faith. Confession is an outward sign of an inward faith. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. Church attendance is an outward sign of an inward faith. Everything we do as Christians is an outward sign of an inward faith. So I have no problem with the words, but they're trying to negate baptism. Those who people who say that are trying to negate baptism and say it's not necessary. It's just a sign. It's just to show that you've already been saved. Let me tell you what baptism is. Baptism is obedience. And obedience is a response of faith. That's exactly what it is. Now, the next question we ask is when? When should a person be baptized? Well, obviously after faith. John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have to believe. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
in John the first chapter in verses 11 and verse 12. And I believe this is probably one of the most important points that clears up the faith only issue if you're really honest with it and you're willing, willing to look at it. It says, He came unto His own and His own received Him not, but to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So those who believe on the name of Christ have the power to become children of God, become the sons of God. Let me, let me parallel it. Let me give you an example. He who attends an Elks Club meeting has the power or the right to become an Elks Club member. But what does that imply? Just because you went to the meeting doesn't make you a member. You still have to do what they say do in order to become a member of the Elks Club. If you believe you have the right to become a child of God, the implication becomes obvious. If you believe you have the right to become a child of God, but you are not yet a child of God. Faith only does not get you there, though a denominational world says it does. Then what? After you believe, then what? Repentance. Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus didn't say it once, He said it twice. I tell you nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. To those people who are proponents of faith only, what about repentance? Let's not worry about baptism. What about repentance? Where does repentance go? Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He didn't say it once, he said it twice. Paul said to the Athenians, pagans on Mars Hill who worshipped all kinds of different gods. He said in times past, God overlooked a lot of ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So I'm not even worried about baptism to my friends who believe in faith only. Let's not even talk about baptism. Let's talk about repentance. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, that's not faith only. There's something they have to do. They have to repent. Well, if repentance is part of the plan, why do we immediately deem everything else? No. It's got to be faith and it's got to be faith only. When should they be baptized? After repentance, after confession, remember the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans, the 10th chapter, verse 9 and verse 10 says, But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So when should you be baptized? After faith, after repentance, and after confession. And then as soon as possible. Another tremendous evidence for the weight and the needfulness of baptism comes in Acts the 16th chapter. In verses 31 to verse 33, you know the story. We talked about it a couple of weeks back, the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer had imprisoned Paul and Silas and the doors of the prison were thrown open. He thought everybody had left and he drew his sword and was going to kill himself. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. He pulled them out. And listen to what the scriptures say. In verse 31 through 33, after he had asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that thou shalt be saved in thine house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway. Now think about this. It was midnight when Paul and Silas were singing. And then the earthquake. And then the doors flew open. And then the jailer almost killed himself. And it was then that he brought them out and said, what must I do to be saved? We're talking about 12, 12, 15, 12, 30. He asked the question, what must I do to be saved? The Bible says Paul preached to him the word of the Lord. He told him about Christ. 
He didn't know anything about him. He was a pagan. He told him about Christ, probably told him about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that he went to a cross to save him from his sins. And then that same hour of the night. Let me tell you something. If baptism isn't important, it's 1.30, o'clock, Paul. You know, you preach a long time. I'm a little tired. My shift's going to end here in a couple of few hours. Can we just do this next week, you know? But no. He took them that same hour of the night. And keep in mind, they didn't have church buildings with baptistries. They had to go find a creek or a river or an ocean. And they put them in there at the same hour of the night, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. Every one of his family, he, everybody goes down to be baptized. Why? If it's not important, why bother with it? So when should you be baptized? As soon as possible. Then we come down to the question of how. How? There are a lot of people that teach sprinkling, that you just sprinkle a person, and that's baptism. Some people teach pouring, you know, that you just pour water on them, that's baptism. Some people teach immersion, that you have to fully immerse someone. Well, the Greek word for baptism or baptize is baptizo. It means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. It never means sprinkle, and it never means pour. The word for pour, if you wanted to say pour in the New Testament, you'd use the Greek word chino, and if you wanted to say sprinkle, you use the Greek word reino. I wonder how that come from, reino. So if you want to talk about pouring, it's chino. If you want to talk about sprinkling, it's reino. But that's not the word that Paul uses throughout the entire New Testament and the other New Testament writers. They use the word baptizo, to dip, to plunge, to immerse. Baptism is a burial. Baptism is a burial. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verse three and verse four, he says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2 and verse 11 and verse 12 again says, In whom we have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of sins, the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Now, I went outside this morning, and I got some dirt. And I need a volunteer come up here, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this dirt and I'm going to sprinkle it all over your head. You know what? Let's not do that. Let's just go ahead and I'm just going to pour this whole little quarter cup of dirt right on your head and everything, and then I'm going to ask everybody in the audience, is this person buried? No. If he's going to be buried, I've got to take him out there in the yard and I've got to put him under the dirt all the way. That's the only way I'm going to get him buried. So I need that volunteer. Who's willing to do it? No one, no one wants to do that. Okay. In Acts the 8th chapter, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Philip and the unit went down into the water. Let me tell you something. This was a high-ranking official. He had a chariot, probably had a driver. Probably one of them big luxury chariots. Had a big old bench seat in the back, air conditioning. No, I'm just kidding. But the fact is, he's sitting back there. He's reading from Isaiah. I know he's not driving the chariot. must have been a driver. Don't tell me for a moment there wasn't a canteen of water on that chariot. But it was when they came to a great deal of water that the Ethiopian eunuch said, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water. If sprinkling or pouring would do it, they would have just took the canteen and said, oh, don't worry about stopping here. Come here. And he would have sprinkled it on him or he would have poured him on him and that would have been the end of that. But he didn't. They stopped the chariot. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and the eunuch was baptized. Now we come down to the last question of the lesson. Why? Well, there are many promises attached to baptism. Approximately 20 Actually, I counted almost 20. I'm not going to go over them all this morning. Let me hit the most important. The most important, I believe, is this. Salvation. When Peter said to those people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. 
You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mark 16 and verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. In Acts 22 and verse 16, when Paul's rehearsing what happened to him on the road to Damascus as he opposed Christ and was out to take Christians and put them in jail and even have them killed. He was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts the ninth chapter. When he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Jesus said, go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. He went into the city and for three days, for three days he prayed and fasted. He neither ate nor drank. Brother, let me tell you what, one more day and he's gone. One more day and he died. Don't tell me he didn't believe. Don't tell me he didn't repent. And don't tell me he didn't call Christ Lord because he did so on the road to Damascus. He is told by Ananias, a man sent from God, to tell him what he must do. And Ananias comes in and tells him, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Let me tell you something. If Paul was saved at the point of faith way back on the road to Damascus, Paul didn't know it. Ananias didn't know it and the Holy Spirit didn't know it because he was told to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. Now, there's a lot of people going to ask some questions. What about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus said to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He did. Understand this. When Jesus was on earth, he was the administrator of his own will. He could forgive sins on his own word. He had not even yet spoken, Mark the 16th chapter. Jesus was the administrator of his own will. And Mark, the ninth chapter, a man was let down on a bed through the roof, probably of Peter's house, and he uh, looked at him and said, Thy sins are forgiven. And everybody around him saying, Who is this? That he forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus would say to them, Which is easier to say? Thy sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. And then he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power while on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of palsy, Take up thy bed and walk. And the man took up his bed and walked. Jesus was saying, while I'm on earth, while I'm here as the ministrator of my own will, I can forgive sins. That you may know that the Son of Man has power while on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. When the man took up his bed, that indicated his power. That indicated his authority. But that wasn't the only place where Jesus forgave sins with a word. In Luke, the seventh chapter, a woman came in while Jesus sat at Simon's house, a Pharisee. And she began to weep at his feet. And her tears fell on his feet and she took her hair and she dried his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven you. See, it's not just the thief on the cross that Jesus forgave sins. He forgave the man who was on the pallet. He forgave the woman who was uh, taken in her sin. After Jesus' death, however, then his testament comes into effect. And Hebrews, the ninth chapter in verse 16 and verse 17 says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For the testament is of forth after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. While Jesus was on earth, he was administrator of his own will. He could say to whomever he will, thy sins are forgiven and they would be forgiven. He could say to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise and forgive him. But after that, after his burial, after his resurrection, it was then he instituted the command to go and to baptize all nations teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he commanded them. And he was then, he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And you say, okay, well, i got another question. What about the guy in the foxhole? The guy that's out there, he's fighting a war for his country. He's in the foxhole. He gets real scared. He realizes he's probably not going to make it out of the foxhole. And he asks the Lord to, to save him and to be a part of his life and so forth and so on. Is he dead, gone to hell because he couldn't get to water and be baptized? Well, First, let me say this. How many opportunities did he have prior to the foxhole to hear the gospel? 
and to believe the gospel and to respond to the gospel. How many times did he have the opportunity to obey the gospel prior to the foxhole? God knows the answer to that. You and I may not, but God knows. And also God can tell. Would he, if he got out of the foxhole, have gone to the pub or to the preacher? Which one? God knows the answer to that question. You and I don't. And if God wants to make exception regarding this individual, he can do so. He's God. He can make exceptions to his rules, but you and I must preach and teach what the Word says. Well, what about the natives in jungles over in Africa and in South America and places where they not even received the Word? They don't even know about Jesus. Well, that points to our obligation to get the message out. But as far as what, whether they, they're saved when they haven't even heard the gospel, I'm going to let God be the judge of that. That's above my pay grade. I'm going to let God be the judge of that, but I'm going to teach what men need to do to be saved. Salvation boils down to obedience. It boils down to obedience. Remember Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter you in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in there, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Luke's account of that passage says strive to enter into the straight gate. The Greek word for strive is agonizomai. It means to agonize, to enter in. So guess what? That means you're not just sitting there saying, I believe. It means you're striving. You're doing something. Salvation's about obedience to the Lord, submission to His will. Remember just a few verses after that enter in at the straight gate passage, in verse 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's not just about believing in something. It's about doing what God says do. In Acts the 5th chapter, in verses 30 through 32, Peter stood in front of the very same people that put Jesus on a cross, handed him over to Pilate. And he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hung on a tree, him hath God exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God hath given to them that obey him. Let me tell you what baptism is about. It's about obedience. It's about obedience. Peter would say this in 1 Peter the 3rd chapter in verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I went to a debate one time between a preacher that was a faith-only preacher and a member of the Restoration Movement, which we're a part of. And they had a debate on the topic of baptism. The Restoration preacher walked over and won the debate with this. He had a chalkboard. They didn't have PowerPoint in those days. He walked over to the chalkboard and he wrote, Baptism doth also now save us, 1 Peter 3.21. And then he put a box... Baptism doth also not save us. And he put a box. And he walked back over to his chair and he says, Now will you go over and check which one you believe? And the Baptist preacher could not. Because if he went over and he checked 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, he forfeits his proposition that baptism is not necessary for salvation and baptism does not save. If he checks, baptism doth also not now save us, he flies in the face of 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. And the debate was won with that simple chalkboard illustration. Let me tell you something. Romans, the sixth chapter in verse three through five says baptism is a condition that God brings you into a covenant. It is necessary. Paul said, no, you're not. That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Watch verse 5, Romans 6, verse 5. For 
if, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Your glorious resurrection is conditioned upon if you've been baptized into Christ, buried with Him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. I didn't say it. Paul did in Romans the 6th chapter. The conclusion, salvation is in Christ. There's no doubt about it. Romans 3 and verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore if, therefore if any man is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, all of those passages talk about blessings being in Christ Jesus, redemption in Christ Jesus. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Promise of life in Christ Jesus. How does one get into Christ? Two passages. And if you don't memorize any other passages in the book, at least remember where these are. Romans 6 and verse 3, we've read it twice already. Know you not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. The other passage is on the back of your bulletin. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Why, Paul? Why are we children of God by faith in Christ Jesus? The next verse, verse 27, says for, that comes from the Greek word gar, which means to introduce the reason for a previous statement. You are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Why? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And the bottom line is salvation is in Christ. Spiritual blessings are in Christ. Redemption is in Christ. Go look up the term in Christ in your electronic gadgets and stuff and find it, man. It is in there dozens upon dozens of times. Salvation is in Christ. Reconciliation is in Christ. Redemption is in Christ. Spiritual blessings are in Christ. The promise of life is in Christ and only two verses in the entire New Testament tell you how to get into Christ. I'm going to close with this. I've got an old Ford Explorer out there. Brother, let me tell you what. That car, it just keeps on going and going and going. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps on going, man. I'm, I'm waiting on it to fall apart any day. And I'm the kind of guy which when it falls apart, then we'll worry about something else. I believe in it. But I cannot believe into it. If I want to get in it, I have to take steps from here to there, open up the door, and get inside. I believe in Jesus, but I cannot believe into Jesus. I am baptized into Christ, according to Romans 6 and verse 3 and Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And those are the only two passages in the New Testament that tell you how to get into Christ. I know this. Salvation is in Christ. The promise of life is in Christ. The death that He shed, the propitiation of your sins is in Christ. And the only way you're going to get to it is to be baptized into Christ and raised to walk a newness of life. For if we have been buried in the likeness of His death, then we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Faith, faith encompasses really all of it. But I don't believe faith only is defined by the denominational churches. I believe that faith brings all of these things into existence and together. I believe that repentance is faith turning. 
I believe that confession is faith speaking. And I believe baptism is faith submitting. And it is at that point, it is at that point that God says their sins are remitted. Their sins are washed away. They are put into Christ, my son. They are saved in the blood, the death, and the burial of Christ. They reach by being baptized into my son. It is that line that God drew, that line of demarcation. I'll remind you of one final passage, and then we'll close with an invitation song. John 3 and verse 5. He said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God.